morning. Perfect. As we encounter our teaching text for today. And before we do that, uh, let's sing this refrain together. Opening ourselves up to whatever God might want to say and do in us through this word. Here's my heart, Lord. Here's my heart, Lord. Here's my heart, Lord. Speak what is true. You can follow up. You can follow along in the Shed Bibles on page 1022, reading Acts 17, 22 through 25. Paul then stood up in the meeting of the Areopagus and said, People of Athens, I see that in every way you are very religious. For as I walked and looked around and looked carefully at your objects of worship, I even found an altar with this inscription, To an unknown God. So you are ignorant of the very thing you worship, and this is what I'm going to proclaim to you. The God who made the world and everything in it is the Lord of heaven and earth, and does not live in temples built by hands. And he is not served by human hands as if he needed anything. Rather, he himself gives everyone life and breath and everything else. This is the word of the Lord. so much, Troy. Thank you, Paul, for reading our word this morning. Hey, Mars Hill family, grace and peace be with you. Yeah, it's so good to see you. My name is Ashley Island. I'm one of the co-lead pastors along with Troy here. It's a joy to serve this community. And I want to start out this morning by giving you a number. That number is 85. No, this is not necessarily the year you were born or the year you got married or the year that quarterback Jim Harbaugh led the Michigan Wolverines in a fiestable victory over Nebraska. This happens to be the number of chicken dishes alone offered by the Cheesecake Factory. That's a lot of chicken dishes. The menu itself is almost 20 pages and six thousand words long. That's longer than some books we've read recently, isn't it? So confession, the only time I ever talk about the Cheesecake Factory is when I'm talking about how anxiety-inducing I think the menu is. And here's why. Having so many options to choose from while I am hungry, yes, I made that three syllables, hungry, one, makes everything look good, even if it's not good for me. And two, it makes it harder to commit to just one 
thing. I'll spend more time flipping back and forth between the lettuce wraps and the avocado egg rolls, or do I want both? Or do I want neither, and what I actually want is the truffle honey chicken? Okay, so I finally settle on the Jamaican black pepper shrimp, and then once I finally indulge in that deliciousness, it's now time folks to choose from one of the 34 cheesecake flavors they offer for dessert. Overwhelming, isn't it? This sounds a little dramatic when we're talking about a restaurant menu, doesn't it? But what if our worship is a little bit more like this than we think? Let me be clear. When I say the word worship, I'm not just talking about musical worship, although that's certainly included. Worship is defined by two words, worth and shape. Parenthetically, I was given this breakdown by a resident worship pastor. And by resident, I mean he lives in my house, Mr. Delwyn Island. And we were talking about this word worship, and he defined it, and I thought it was so brilliant. He said it's ascribing worth to someone or something, and then allowing that one or thing to shape you. Ascribing worth to someone or something, and then taking the next step and allowing that one or thing to shape you. See, friends, we have a lot of things in our lives that are valuable, that we would give worth to, but do we in our lives notice the ways in which those things don't just come to us as valuable, but that shape us. Our thoughts, our words, our bodies, our conversations, our money, our relationships, our emotions. What if our worship is anxiety-inducing, producing a scatteredness of devotion and allowing ourselves to be formed by many things or maybe nothing at all because when we actually pause to examine our lives, what we see looks less like an opportunity to feast on one and more like a menu that tempts us to many. It's at this point where I'd like to pause and say, Daniel Tiger wasn't necessarily wrong. The song is still true, you can be more than one thing. But what I want my kids to ultimately know, what I want my own heart to know, what I want the church to know is that you can be more than one thing, but you cannot give yourself in worship to more than one object and not be divided. In a world, in a Western culture that tells us more options, whether that be for fulfillment, success, self-discovery, and for spiritual wholeness is better, worthy of giving our whole selves to. What if God is calling us back, church, to a new choice, a better choice, a less torn and burdensome, more life-giving choice? What if we abandon all else to worship God and God alone? What would that look like? What could that look like? 
So I encountered our text from this morning from Acts 17 in a new way. It was in one of our daily readings at the end of the summer, I believe it was July, which, side note, read the word with us. Every morning I read from a plan that's already spelled out for us on our encounter app or marshill.org slash daily readings. I know Troy reads this every day. It shapes us, it forms us, we have conversations about it. Read with us, it's such a powerful way to ground ourselves in this narrative together. But we were here at the end of the summer and it struck me because from verses 16 to 34, I felt the tension. The Apostle Paul is fleeing Berea. He's waiting for Silas and Timothy in Athens and while he's waiting, he noticed that Athens is full of idols and the word says his spirit is provoked in verse 16. So first he goes to the Jewish synagogue to proclaim the gospel. That was customary. And then he ends up in the marketplace with the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers. We'll talk about them more in a minute. And then those philosophers end up bringing him to the Areopagus. Now the Areopagus wasn't just some neutral hangout place in Athens. This was the pinnacle meeting spot for the greatest, most intellectually respected Greek thinkers, artists, and culture shapers of the time. Culturally, the Greeks, they were open-minded. They were so open-minded. They prided themselves on being intellectually stimulated by new ideas. Novelty was rewarded and considered part of what made them great. So then when we read in verse 19, the question that they've asked Paul, may we know what this new teaching is that you are presenting? This makes sense. Look at the parentheses in verse 21 if you have your Bible. It says all the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there spent their time doing nothing but talking about and listening to the latest ideas and Paul, now has what sounds like a new idea. Visually, imagine the Areopagus littered with altars to their gods. Conversations between intellectuals were being had, those representing stoic philosophy, how that the greatest good is to be good. So they were having conversations about how might we be good the greatest? And then you had the Epicureans. They were having conversations about that the greatest good was to enjoy life and life to the fullest. Kids, they were the original ones touting YOLO. That's not new. The Epicureans were saying live life to the fullest. The time is now. How might we live into that reality? Church, can we pause here and locate ourselves in the folds of this environment. Can I ask us a question? What philosophies have populated your Areopagus? Maybe you would say that growing up, it was really important to your family that you receive a top-notch education, that where you went to school and how you were formed intellectually really mattered. And not only did it really matter, but Perhaps for you or someone in your family, that also was a tie to status. And over time, that status meant something about you and meant something else about others. Is that a part of your Areopagus? Maybe what's represented for you is a pursuit of knowledge, 
Your advanced degrees, they matter. The number of books someone else has read or the number of books on your Goodreads list, that matters. Where you get your sources from, those really matter. There might even be alternative perspectives that seem increasingly interesting and reliable, that curiosity and maybe even rejection of the mainstream is important to you. Is that a part of your Areopagus? Just one more example. Perhaps you'd say that being spiritually open matters to you. Yes, you're a Christian, but that new mindfulness approach really works. You'll burn sage or collect crystals. You'll go for a hike by yourself and call it church. Astrology and horoscopes reduce your anxiety and give you more of a handle on what the future might hold. You don't blink twice when someone prays to the universe, which parenthetically, there are only 200 billion trillion, this is true, stars out there, and that prayer has to land on one of them. Before you know it, brothers and sisters, what we realize is we have a cluttered philosophical menu and before you and I know it, we're not the apostles proclaiming the good news of Jesus Christ. We are the Greeks trying to situate the idea of the good news amidst the rest of it all. The philosophies we've amassed look good, even if they're not good news for us or the rest of the world. And just like at the Cheesecake Factory, it's all of a sudden that much harder to fully give ourselves to, to worship just one. To ascribe worth to and be shaped ultimately by just one. Paul knew those at the Areopagus needed a chance to make a new choice, and maybe this morning so do we. Because what or who we choose to worship is the difference between trying on religion and actual transformation and showing a living God to the watching world, Marcel. Two areas of our lives here in the text that we see Paul reference in his proclamation to the Greeks that I want us to consider today as well, just two. And as um, Troy's invitation surrounding our text proclaimed, May you pray again. Give your heart to the Lord. Might you be open to what the Spirit has to say in this time. So the first area that we see Paul really talking to is altars. He says, people of Athens, I see in every way you are very religious. Now here we have to understand the tone with which he's saying this. Scholars don't think Paul is being snarky, tongue in cheek. You might be able to, to translate this word religious to superstitious. He's actually trying to affirm that what the Greeks are doing, they're doing in kind. They're doing with a level of, of importance that is really valuable to them. He's saying, people of Athens, I see in every way you are very religious. For as I walk around and look carefully at your objects of worship, I even found an altar with this inscription, to an unknown God. So you are ignorant of the very thing you worship. 
Again, think about where they are at the Areopagus. Paul is surrounded by shrines to various gods and deities, and what he's noticed is that the desire to worship and represent the gods was so intense that there were even shrines to gods unknown, kind of just in case they'd missed one. They were so interested in worshiping all the great gods that there were altars and shrines to gods that they admit they don't know. And here's what's so interesting to me, church. One, Paul begins his proclamation. This is kind of a sub-point to our time this morning. This isn't the main point. This is like a sub-point. Paul begins his proclamation by not shunning the Greeks. He doesn't tell them they're a bunch of pagans and they should get their act together. He begins by acknowledging and admitting them exactly where they are. How different is that in how we approach one another today? Where our first impulse might be to call out difference or where someone else is lacking Paul comes to them in their context first. And then two, he shows them how their superstition is inadequate. Remember who he's talking to. He's before the Athenian Council of Ares, the greatest minds and thinkers, these sophisticated, educated people, and he reveals to them a chink in their logic. Essentially, he points to the fact that their intellect clearly isn't cutting it. It's not enough because they're admitting the existence of a God they can't and don't know. There's a gap there. For as intellectual as they are, there is a gap. Paul was showing them that they needed more because their various altars, their worship of everything, meant they were worshiping nothing. And the more that he was trying to show them they needed was one, Jesus. Another question for us, what altars have we built just in case? Maybe you've been drawn or have paid attention to most more um, obvious cultural altars, ones erected to political figures as the ones who will save us, to Christian nationalism, conflating power, war, and country first as leading kingdom values. Maybe you've pointed out altars to media, our reliance on certain platforms or voices to assign value or be the main source of our wisdom. Maybe you identified our ongoing national struggle with consumerism of products, status symbols, food, you name it, and see the altar we've built to our stuff. Those might be more obvious to some, but what about ones that are less obvious? That are just as threatening to our worship of Jesus Christ. Let me pause here and say, church, this part of my time in prayer and study for this morning was the hardest because the questions I had to ask of myself, I'm now asking to you. It's hard to consider the altars we've erected. It's hard to name them and allow the Holy Spirit to reveal them to us. Over COVID, I did a ton of baking. I told you this. I've admitted this to you already, and it was very good. I had the time, and I told myself it was a great way to practice math with the kids while they weren't in school and spend quality time with them. 
But as time went on, I realized it was an altar. I was relying on sugar to activate my mesolimbic dopamine system in my brain as an injection of positivity when what I was really feeling was pain and hurt and I wanted something else to make that pain and hurt go away. I was allowing that thing to shape me. I was giving it worth and it was shaping me in all the wrong ways. Another one for me is productivity. If I can just do more, that might say something about my worth. And in order to do more, I'll say no to rest. I might skimp on the Sabbath. There are other things that have crept in that I've had to name in this space have become altars, church. Maybe for you it's an altar to money. Maybe it's to your security, your sense of place, to your ideas, opinions, preferences. Just like Paul, I'd like to say that these things may make us religious, but they're inadequate. And they prevent ourselves from fully choosing Jesus and knowing him, even if they're not immediately harmful, even if in some ways they are good. Paul goes on to tell the Athenians that the God who made the world and everything in it is the Lord of heaven and earth and does not live in temples built by hands. And he is not served by human hands as if he needed anything. Rather, he himself gives everyone life and breath and everything else. What the Greeks would have heard him say is the word zoe. We've talked about this word before in our Apostles' Creed series when Troy was teaching. It's a Greek word for life. The Greeks understood Zeus as the god of the sky. He was ruler, protector, father of all gods and humans. And yet Paul is saying Zeus isn't the giver of life. The one true god is. Essentially, Paul's trying to get them to see. You see all these altars you've fashioned on your own. God doesn't live in them. He's not served by your construction of all these lesser things. Instead, he is the one that gives life. Church, God makes us and gives us life. Our altars we build to try and satisfy our own desires do not make God. So second, he nodded to their identity. Paul quotes two of their Greek poets, not as a way of agreement necessarily. Again, he's trying to do something here in the way he's talking to them, trying to meet them exactly where they are. This is brilliant to me. He's trying to employ their own language and context to point them to who God is in Jesus Christ. First, he references Epimenides, who wrote a poem which was spoken by the son of Zeus when he says, for in him we live and move and have our being. He's talking about Zeus. This poet is talking about Zeus, but Paul is saying, no, it's the son of the living God that I'm trying to point you to and proclaim in using your own poetic language. Then he quotes Aratus, who was schooled in Stoic philosophy. And this is from his Phenomena. This is the first part of the poem, and then you'll see the last part. Let us begin with Zeus, whom we mortals never leave unspoken. For every street, every marketplace is full of Zeus. Even the sea and the harbor are full of his deity. 
everywhere, everyone is indebted to Zeus, for we are indeed his offspring. Hellenistic Stoics would have heard that opening line and known that this poet is appealing to a pantheistic deity that lives in everything. So whereas the Greeks would have thought about the divine nature of man because of that thought, Paul is pointing back to God as the one source of man's life. Essentially, he's saying, if we're the offspring of an immortal Zeus, then how is it his immortality is able to be held in your inanimate objects? He's again saying, look, you're brilliant, and yet this doesn't make sense. There has to be something else to appeal to. Let's look at this Romans passage, Romans chapter 1. Paul says, for since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen. For although they knew God, they neither glorified him as God nor gave thanks to him, although they claimed to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images made to look like mortal human beings and birds and animals and reptiles. This is not just a message for the Athenians. This is a message for us too. The creator of the world isn't just a nebulous presence floating around in objects. The creator was revealed to us in a person, church, Jesus Christ. And because the one true God came in form of human likeness, making himself nothing, our identity, hear this very clearly, our identity isn't grounded in the fact that we are divine. It's in that in him, we are made in his image, given his life, meant to reflect him to the world. As I was thinking about this, I thought of um, these couple of verses from Ephesians 2. I'll, just, I'll read these over you, just receive them. Because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ even when we were dead in transgressions. For we are God's handiwork. For we are God's handiwork, created in Christ Jesus to do good works which God prepared in advance for us to do. So Paul finishes his proclamation and he's ultimately mocked out of the place. A few scholars would say that at face value, Paul's evangelistic effort here was a failure. We don't like stories that look like a failure, do we? But a few believed, and two were named, Dionysus and Damaris. The reason I think this is for us today, it's not just as a general us as the church, but the particular us is Mars Hill. The Areopagus where Paul is before these brilliant thinkers, artists, and philosophers. The Romans ended up naming the Areopagus Mars Hill. This is the inheritance of our name. 
For those of you who don't know, this is the inheritance of our name. This is where it comes from, our namesake. Many new thought-provoking and culturally stimulating ideas have been present here. Many moments of awe-inspiring creativity have been beheld here. People have looked to Mars Hill for cutting edge ways of existing in the world. And yet, this is all I want to say to us, church, this morning. May we be known as Mars Hill not because of our trying on of religion, but because we heard the truth of the exclusivity of the gospel. And we made a choice to say yes to being transformed by one, not just tolerant of many to ascribe worth to Jesus and be shaped by him alone. To be a Jesus people, not a people that's walking unknowingly because of all the different options the world gives us to be pulled in different directions, not being shaped by anything because we just say yes to everything. May we be a Mars Hill that receives and understands the good news of Jesus Christ and says yes to showing Jesus to the world. Two questions. We want to pray with you into these. These are not for you to figure out on your own. We trust the power of the Holy Spirit, but we have prayer walls in the back. If you need to write this prayer on a piece of paper and put it in the wall, we will pray for you. If you put your name, we will follow up with you and pray with you. I believe Paul will be in the back if you want to pray with Paul. And anyone else from our prayer team who's here today. One, how have you made God, lowercase g? How have you tried to make your own God or gods? The invitation is very direct this morning, church. It's to tear down the altars. Tear down any lesser altars. Neo-pluralism, this idea that everything belongs is not true. Everything does not belong on the altar. We say yes to God's grace. We say yes to identifying him as the way, the truth, and the life, a life we also desperately long for. It's satisfied in him. What other altars need to go? And then secondly, what does it mean that God made you? God made you. What are the good works that Christ laid out for you to do? We're talking about spiritual giftedness in this series. We're talking about a new vocation. We're talking about ways that we're being invited into this great story. What does it mean for the sake of the world that God made you? The good news that you didn't make God, it's the other way around. What do you need to come alive to in your identity in Christ? What do you need to proclaim to the world about who God is. This is a hard word to give and to receive because the good news is exclusive. It's countercultural. We won't always gain much success from its proclamation, but we have deep hope in its promise. And that's what I want to tell you this morning, church. We have a choice. 
we have a new choice to turn and repent, as Paul says to the Greeks at the Areopagus, and to choose one, Jesus Christ. We come to the table now, and I think it's so interesting. I was thinking about our time at the table. The one broke himself for the many. The only one worthy of our worship was broken for many. So as you receive from the table today, may that good news, the sacrifice given for every single person here and watching online, bring you alive in Christ in a new way. So it's with deep joy that I say to you, church, the Lord be with you. Lift up your hearts. Let us give thanks to the Lord our God. This is the story that on the night he was betrayed, Jesus took the bread, and after giving thanks, he broke it, and he said, this is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And then after supper, he took the cup, and he said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me, for whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. So we pray now, come Holy Spirit. Thank you, Holy Spirit. Would you nourish us, mind, body, and soul through this meal? Bring us alive again. As you've done in the past, we know you are faithful to do it again today in your church, in us. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. So now, church, we proclaim the mystery of our faith together, not just as Mars Hill, but as the church all around the world. We are unified as one in this proclamation that Christ has died. Christ is risen, and Christ will come again. Mars Hill, receive who you are, the body of Christ.